0: You're listening to Captured and Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee.
1: And I'm Andrew Snyder.
0: And on this episode, we are here to talk about the movies of the year 2000, 20 years ago now. We're going way, way back. Uh, it doesn't feel as far back for me, and I guess for you too, Andrew, as it actually is. It's only when you start to think about some of this, that you go, hmm, that really was a long time ago, but we... Have decided we're going to work our way through the best films, or just got, I guess, not all good, but year by year through the 21st century to get a flavor of what it's been like so far. And of course, we're going to we did a lot on that on um, 2019 last week, but it makes sense, I think, for us to leave that one to stew a little bit before making any kind of longer term, um, kind of bigger picture declarations about that year. So we're going to go all the way back to the other side and basically the beginning of the millennium, the year 2000, does part of this, does kind of reflecting and even thinking about these movies, and then we're not old, Andrew, right? We're, just, we're both the same age too. Um, but there was something about this exercise where 2000 feels quite recent to me. And then when you realize it was 20 years ago, and then I think of what age I was when some of these movies originally came out or released theatrically, it made me feel quite old.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll echo that as well. There are a lot of movies that, as I started to consider the year as a whole, that I've seen, and when you're trying to, to think about it, you feel like you saw them when they came out, but that's not necessarily true because uh, I was eight years old, and I know my mom wasn't going to let me watch American Psycho when I was eight years old. But <laughs> there's a lot of memorable movies that it, it almost makes me feel like I experienced that year in film as it was happening. But uh, I, that definitely wasn't the case. It, it's a better year uh, than I gave it credit for initially to you offline as I'm looking through the list. And it was also a year, as we'll get into, of kind of a, a turning point in technology. Is that fair to say?
0: Um certainly the case for one of your films, which I don't know, you may you may have stumbled across that particular detail and that could be what's prompting you to say that. Am I right?
1: Yeah, that's that that's definitely one thing. Um
0: it is it is this interesting juncture more generally, and I mean, um, even I watched back through some of the other films, films that we're not really gonna talk about in detail today, but movies that I just hadn't seen. Um, either just oversights and never having gotten to them. And obviously, like you said, part of it is there's a lot of movies that I wouldn't have been interested in or wouldn't have been, uh, brought to see at the age I was when these movies came out, but also just kind of things that maybe have never, never really pulled me in. I mean, like I need to see that movie, but when it came to this kind of exercise, and we're going to talk about the year as a whole there were some things that I felt like "Mm, they're pretty glaring oversights. And some of them uh, I went out of my way to address. And in doing so, and just watching and thinking about a lot of films from this time. There is, there is kind of a weird and interesting thing that I think carries on for a few more years where movies don't quite look like they look now. And yet they're not a piece with anything from, I mean, even anywhere up to, Late 90s, I guess, in a lot of ways, Titanic is kind of the, the point of delineation here for where technology really kind of kicked up a gear or when movies started to look a little bit different than they had before. And I guess the scale of everything changed from there. And I, I think it is something when we kind of talk about some of the movies that made a splash this year, so, so quite literally, to me there's still an element of the Titanic effect in place. There's maybe... Not necessarily looking to replicate it, but searching for spectacle in that way, which is interesting because we're so used to now, I guess, mainstream Hollywood movies are particularly being almost all about spectacle. And yet over the course of twenty years, what that spectacle could be seems to have flipped on its head entirely.
1: One thing I also wanted to mention about about this specific year is it also represents uh Kind of a golden age of a of an era that doesn't exist anymore, and that golden age is the golden age of the video store, Adam. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I imagine that that Blockbuster stock was close to uh, to a high for them. I don't know specifically, but this was the time where on a Friday night with your family, you're walking up and down the aisles uh, of the Blockbuster and seeing what you're going to rent for the weekend. You're really hoping that. Um, all, all the things you missed in theaters that you really want to see aren't gone this is before the the era of streaming where everything was at your fingertips you actually had to work to go and to go and find something that you wanted to see and it was it was a ritual of sorts rather than just scrolling down your Netflix screen for for 40 minutes and until you eventually just decide to rewatch the office for the fourth time
0: okay what I'm gonna do before we we talk with some of these movies in particular I'm gonna give kind of just some... So I guess, touchstones for, okay, what was the year in movies and what was it from a variety of different areas? And this is something we're going to do. As I said, this is the year 2000. We're going to work our way through the century. And who knows, if we're doing this for quite a long time, maybe once we get past that, we'll end up going further back in time. But we want to kind of examine year to year. So I want to set out some kind of structure that we can all get used to. and also so kind of gently introduce us to some of the movies, some of the things that are providing the background for this movie. Or for this movie year, I should say. Does that sound good to you,
1: Andrew? That sounds perfect to me, Adam. Let's let's line
0: it out. So I have three areas I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on every time we do this. They are the Academy Awards, the Pam Dora can, and the box office. And that's kind of covering three very disparate areas of the filmic world. And that's kind of part of what i want to do because even when we get into this conversation i think there's different strands that we will touch on what kind of came out in that year to try and get an overall sense of i guess the quality of a given year and in this case the year 2000 so if we start with the the academy awards it's the 73rd oscars best picture went to gladiator best director went to steven soderbergh for traffic best actor russell crowe for gladiator best actress julia roberts for aaron Brockovich. The Screenplay Awards original went to Cameron Crowe for Almost Famous and Adapted went to Stephen Gagan for Traffic. A can the Palme d'Or was won by Dancer in the Dark, Lars von Trier's uh, Bjork musical. Have you seen Dancer in the Dark, Andrew?
1: I have not seen Dancer in the Dark.
0: Neither have I. Um, So we're not going to have a whole lot to say on Dancer in the Dark on this. I'm going to assume it
1: was different than Nymphomaniac.
0: I will, I will go along with that. But a Lars von Trier film, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out of my way to make too many assertions as what it may be without having seen it. Uh, just a Bjork musical sounds like something that, on its surface level, could suck you in, only for you to be incredibly surprised at what you'd get in this particular case. And then the last element of this: the box office, top ten movies at the box office worldwide. Do you want to guess? Any idea from some of the movies that you know came out this year what may have been number one worldwide at the box office in 2000?
1: Number one worldwide. Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say Aaron Brockovich.
0: No, Aaron Brockovich number thirteen. Uh grows two hundred and fifty seven million dollars worldwide, which Pretty good for, you know, a drama, the sort of thing that's even more difficult to do now. Um, These numbers, all considerably lower, so we won't get into the number elements overall because, you know, we're not exactly the numbers guys. We're not going to be adjusting for inflation on the fly here. But number one worldwide was Mission Impossible 2. In number two, we had Gladiator 3, Castaway 4. Worldwide in 2000 was What Women Want
1: wow pete gibson
0: <laughs> that in itself is you know it puts a marker in time on when certain things happen that wouldn't happen now uh number five dinosaur do you remember dinosaur
1: uh was it a cgi movie where we follow around a not a triceratops but one of the ones with the long necks that basically are like dinosaur giraffes is that what that was
0: yeah, I mean, I think you're you're surprisingly on top of it. it. I don't think I've ever seen it. It, it was a Disney movie. Um, and not a lot of Disney CGI at that point. So that would have been a pretty rare one in its own right. It's something completely separate to Pixar. It was obviously before Disney had acquired Pixar, even. Um, anyway, to continue, that was five. Number six, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Number seven, Meet the Parents. Number eight, The Perfect Storm. Number nine, X-Men. And number 10, What Lies Beneath. Just missing out, scary movie, Charlie's Angels, Aaron Brockovich. With all of those, those three strands just introduced to you, we'll break down kind of the kind of films that fit into each of these niches in a second. What is your overall feeling about, I guess, what the snapshot of movies in 2000 is?
1: I guess in terms of the movies that that made money, it's a little concerning. What Women Want Meet the Parents not not movies I love. Gladiator I think is something that hasn't aged particularly well but was was pretty entertaining at the time. Overall that snapshot uh feels very different than the place we are now with movies. And Adam I I also wanted to point out that this movie may not have made as much money but the patriot starring mel gibson another big mel gibson movie in the year 2000 again i bring it back everything comes back to mel gibson
0: i feel like there's an episode coming up when we when we when we continue this exercise um not the next one yeah i'm looking ahead and i'm right but the one after that we will again have a big mel gibson box office year possibly some some more beyond that um but yeah that's funny that is just one thing that is entirely different i I mean one thing i will give this i don't know if i like any of those 10 movies (laughs) like at all it's a tough list i i I don't mind meet the parents i mean i don't know if i've seen it in like 15 years um but there was a time when i i would have quite enjoyed meet the parents It's it's a pretty rough list, but I do admire the variety compared to what would happen now. Um, It it is just kind of amazing it's not that long ago and what this looks like without superheroes. Um, Not even just without superheroes. I mean, okay, we've won superhero movie. We've got the start of X-Men. We've got that comes in at number nine. Other than that, in terms of franchise, number one is a franchise with Mission Impossible 2. I don't know if people are going to it though because it was a sequel as much as because it was the new Tom Cruise movie that would feel pretty representative of the year 2000. But even kind of looking down beyond that, it's just... Maybe this is a jumping off point. As I mentioned, the first X-Men this year, scary movie, the first scary movie came in at number 11. I don't know, is this a point where some franchises kind of took off? Although I don't think either of those are the most successful. It's just, it's a weird list in hindsight, given what we've become so used to. To kind of separate this and begin to break down some of the three strands. The first one we'll go to is Prestige Pictures, um. which what I mean by this is, these are kind of the top line quote unquote important movies of the year, at least in the kind of awards conversation. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the best, um, Some of this goes beyond the awards conversation and goes to, I guess, critical acclaim. But these are kind of big and flashy, if not always, in terms of scale and location or set emotionally. These are the kind of movies that are designed to play on certain buttons. And I think we'll always have some in every single year we look at that will fit into this mold. Some of the ones that jump out to me, Gladiator, I mean, first and foremost, It took home Best Picture, Russell Crowe won Best Actor. I watched Gladiator for the first time today, Andrew. This is a movie that I feel like I went through. mm -hmm, At some point in my schooling journey, there would have been a lot of, we'll say maybe 15-year-old boys who this was their favorite movie around me, and I just couldn't care less. And as the years have gone on, I have not cared anymore. I'm like, this is just one, I'm not into Ridley Scott, incredibly one note and not even an interesting note director for me. I mean, the bulk of his output for me is not something that really speaks to me. So that is an instant put off, but also just the idea of this ancient Rome. Do we need to do this? Who cares? And I watched it today. It's fine-ish. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it has a Hans Zimmer score that is pretty iconic and lots of kind of individual songs in that soundtrack that you would hear just all over the place in provos for sports and basically reusing so many different elements of culture today. And yet the score is just like persistent throughout. It just suffocates the movie. The movie doesn't know when to let it drop out. And in part, I think it's because the movie doesn't allow the audience a second where it's not, holding its hand and I don't think it's a very smart movie. I don't ultimately know what it's saying. Like there's a very basic reading of the film that's there for everyone to see, but I I don't know. I can't kind of take any greater meaning for it. And maybe now I'm suffering because I am seeing it on the 20 years later side of the scale, but the actual spectacle of the film isn't even that interesting to me. I don't think it's that impressive even at that time. And there is another movie or another, well, a franchise in this case that came out very similar time frame. That I guess the biggest epic scenes in Gladiator remind me of. I wonder, can you guess what film or a couple of films in particular I'm referring to there? One came out before, and one came out, I think, two years after. Another a few years later.
1: Before and after. Um. I'm stumped here. You're not going to say 300, are you?
0: (laughs) No, I'm going to say the Star Wars prequel trilogy.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, I see where you're going
0: with that. The visuals of the Colosseum. Now, I'm sure this is not entirely on uh, Gladiator. Um, This is the kind of thing that, you know, what do we want? What do we want the battle scene in Attack of the Clones? Or what do we want uh, the pod racing to look like in... Uh, Phantom Menace, those sort of things, and uh, maybe some some fine people who were working on those not so fine movies said, "Oh, let's we want to evoke the Romans," um, in kind of the same way that I I don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but you know there's some uh some straight lifted from Triumph for the Will scenes in Gladiator, which at the time Ridley Scott was like, "Yeah, but the Nazis they were just you know they were just copying what the Romans did. That's that's how it's like this." But there's just something to it that the spectacle didn't work for me. And I just think it's visually a really ugly movie. Um, the colour, the lighting just doesn't work. It's very, very strange. And I was watching it and just thinking, I think this would be a catastrophic bomb if it came out now. Like, catastrophic bomb. Like <laughs> like the, the Ridley Scott Russell Crowe films that came later, I guess. Like something like Robin Hood. Uh, when they did that and like i mean does anyone remember that did anyone care at the time it kind of feels like just a few years later that would have been the case and yet this was what did i say the second highest grossing movie worldwide of the year and it won best picture Uh, which in its own right isn't now a completely improbable combination to think that you could have a movie that makes that much money and also wins best picture but for me gladiator undoubtedly one of the most notable movies of this year but it's a movie that I think I ended up even more underwhelmed than I may have expected to be when I watched it. What are your thoughts? You probably haven't seen gladiator in quite some time, but was it a movie that you remember connected to when you first saw it or what's your overall impression of it?
1: It was a movie that I remember feeling like I didn't get the hype. So it was probably something I saw a few years after the fact. And, you know, a bunch of 12 year old boys watching uh, a movie with, with swords and, and gladiators, uh, kind of glommed on to it and just thought it was the coolest thing in the world but I, I never really got this movie it's and especially looking back now it's something that maybe if it's on tnt at two in the afternoon on a sunday i'll sit and watch 10 minutes of it and and then turn the channel very quickly it's not something that really sucks you in on a rewatch. um so yeah it was something that was very of the time flashy action uh redemption revenge narrative story that Overall, it's just not that interesting, and is just in terms of the narrative is very generic. And one thing that, that I kept thinking of when I think about how really just boring this movie is is it's got one of the most uninteresting joaquin Phoenix performances I've ever seen.
0: It's a very strange performance.
1: It's a one-note character that's a little whiny and doesn't make sense. And usually, when you're watching a movie with Joaquin Phoenix in it. You can't really look away. He just draws your attention, even when he's doing something subtle. And this is could be characterized as a little more showy performance, just because of you know what the character is. But it just comes across as is uninteresting. And he's, it, play, he's playing Joffrey
0: from Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones.
1: Exactly, but without the same effective type of vitriol. You don't even. He's not even interesting enough to hate. Um, it's, it's a movie that I really have never thought to revisit and honestly didn't even identify it with the year 2000 until we, until we sat down to do this. So sorry if you love Gladiator, but, uh, just not worth the time and really speaks to where popular movies were back then. Like you said, there was a lot of good variety, but the fact that that was what won best picture is, has not aged well.
0: So the other movies I put in the prestige conversation, we'll quickly just kind of touch on them. Another two of these I also watched uh, in preparation for this for the first time. One of those is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Have you seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon?
1: I did. Um, at the time, have not seen it since. Uh don't really have any strong thoughts about it one way or the other.
0: Phenomenally entertaining in bursts. Its its action sequences are just. Phenomenal, and actually do still hold up in a lot of ways to something that if you saw today, you'd go, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Um, that's pretty interesting. To me, it actually, I watched this, and then I followed it up with Gladiator, and it was really striking um, just how dynamic the action is shot in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, as opposed to how just kind of flat and incoherent it can be in Gladiator particularly because the choreography is at a much, much higher level in Crouching Tiger and Ang Lee is doing a lot more with it. I mean, the the film is edited through those sequences at a kind of a much more precise in a much more precise way, but also at a much more pressing pace. It has to get from point A to point B for the violence to be any kind of way coherent and to kind of really land and, in that case, important for impressing the audience and kind of taking their bread away. And without that, it doesn't work. Um, but a good movie, a really good movie. It, it cracked the top 20 worldwide in the box office and was a big kind of breakout hit, um, which was not not quite something that was common then. Um, So not that it's any more common now. I mean, we've had the Parasite discussions and how refreshing that is. We're in a
1: post-Parasite America, Adam. Everything's... Everything's upside down.
0: (laughs) Well, there's some things we won't get into on that. Um, Other movies that kind of fit the bill. One I had seen before and one I was not drawn to watch for this was Castaway. Castaway has lived on in the consciousness, effectively as a meme. Do you feel that's fair to say? Am I being harsh? Or is Castaway now just a, a meme 20 years later?
1: I think you're right that Castaway is largely a Wilson meme. Now, rather than a movie, but for a moment, I will t- take this public forum to say I really enjoy Castaway I Cast Away. I think it's Tom Hanks giving what I'll call a movie star performance, and it's it's not the best movie, but it's it's interesting. And when it came out, it was it had something going for it. You know, large stretches of the movie with no dialogue, just living with Tom Hanks in this desperate situation. I, I liked it at the time. I've, Did you see this
0: when it came out?
1: Yes, this is one I remember seeing on a VHS tape, uh, I think at at school if I'm remembering correctly. So probably what? the year after it came out. Yeah. So why? You know, you get down to the end of the year, Adam. It's almost time. for I know, break. but not
0: castaway. I mean, I don't get it. I I this is definitely. I mean, you mentioned video stores to begin with. I I definitely thought it's on the VHS, um, and not not too far after it came out and it certainly would have been my pick i know that much are are you saying so did your affection was it really at the time or the whole up beyond that was this a film that you would have kind of held fond memories of for quite some time
1: i wouldn't necessarily say fond memories it's just something i i always enjoyed watching as kind of a a mindless watch i mean it sounds weird to say about a movie where a man gets uh what's what i'm looking for gets left on a deserted island Passed after away. Is way yeah. is that what you're looking for i think uh i don't know my, my brain is mush right now but you know watching a plane crash and a man have to raft his way to a deserted island is not necessarily the most enjoyable watch but when you're watching tom hanks do it adam there's there's something there if this movie came out in 2020 do i think it would have gotten the time of day do i think i would think about it the way i thought about it then of course not but you know it was a product of its time it, it may not age quite as well as something like singing in the rain or vertigo but
0: i think that's yeah i think it's safe to say that wasn't your hottest take there that it hasn't uh aged quite as well as that particular duo um i'm gonna i'm gonna put two movies together here because um not the only year where this has ever happened but Steven Soderbergh kind of just owns this year. Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, not only both came out this year, not only were both successful. But did you know, Andrew, Soderbergh was nominated twice for Best Director. Both of those movies, he was nominated for Best Director
1: at the Oscars.
0: And of course, he won for Traffic. So he didn't even kind of split his own votes, which is incredibly impressive.
1: Wow, you know, I thought he was going to win his Oscar for uh, the Moneyball that he never ended up making. If you ever read the be- behind the scenes on that that movie, that would have been really interesting. Uh, Traffic's one I've not seen. Aaron Brockovich, one I've seen once and wasn't particularly fond of. I mean, that being said, it probably deserves a revisit. But a geometry tutor I had once Very much enjoyed that movie and would reference it a lot, especially the scene uh, where Julia Roberts is talking about her boobs or something, and she would reference that like every. A lot of those scenes. Yeah, something like they're called boobs, and she referenced that at least like during four or five of like a ten. 10 sessions that I had with her. I was like, yes, you've told this joke before. Also, you're 65 years old. I don't know what's happening. So maybe I have a negative association with that movie because of that completely unrelated reason. So that's a little unfair on my part.
0: You really weren't joking last week when you mentioned this podcast being therapy for you. This This is the third movie that I watched for the first time in preparation for this. And I probably wouldn't have even bothered if it wasn't for the fact that it was Soderbergh. And I'm glad I did. It was actually... Highly watchable and pretty entertaining, and I mean, Julia Roberts is really good in that. I mean, I'm not saying it's a great movie or anything, but it's it's pretty pretty solid. Like yeah, I mean, early
1: Aaron Eckhart in there as well. If you oh that.
0: Aaron Eckhart in that Aaron Eckhart in that movie, his whole biker vibe is very strange. It's. It bowled me over when he first came on screen. Um, I will say Albert Finney is amazing. His performance is amazing in that movie. And he carries quite a lot of it too that probably isn't remembered quite as it should be because it's so obviously associated as an iconic Julia Roberts movie. But actually quite a watchable, solid, entertaining movie, which didn't quite surprise me as much as maybe make it sound because it's Soderbergh. And this is what he does. He can just kind of take on as many different movies and craft something that's, you go, yeah, that was very solid, you know? uh I'll give that a 6 to 8 out of 10. You know, Soderbergh reliably does that and often then manages to even go above that. So I certainly think that fits that bill. I haven't seen Traffic in quite some time, but I have seen it. Uh, very memorable Benicio Del Toro, but it does, it does speak to one of those classic Oscar cases of a director being recognized for a movie that you're kind of like huh? Really? Like, and I, I think now with Distance, probably only seems even stranger. It's it's not even the most soderbergh movie, and I say that even kind of acknowledging he is a director who is pretty much like a chameleon and does go from one thing to another. There's still kind of his stamps there, and I don't feel like they're all necessarily that obvious in that movie. A good movie from, from memory, I remember enjoying it at the time I watched it, um, but not entirely stellar. I mean, th- I feel like this isn't the best collection of these kind of movies, the kind of movies that stand out as, oh, these are significant movies from that year. The other one that I kind of jotted down, as just weren't mentioning here, is Billy Elliot, which, pretty big deal, and I guess more of an underdog story in this particular mix, but then again, it's also playing some notes that are pretty typical for um the Oscars, and I guess for generally kind of drumming up critical acclaim, and it would have certainly benefited from that, and it did become a player in award season. Have you seen Billy Elliott?
1: I have not. As a child, I hated movies starring other children. Again, therapy <laughs> Adam. Uh, wow, I don't know. this is that is interesting. Do you know why? Can you even now? Put your May- finger on why that was? Maybe it was a jealousy thing. I was like, why am I not on the, the silver screen? Wow. Uh, I think it can all be traced back to the movie Simon Birch, which is one of the most upsetting, horrible movies that has ever been released. If you If you read the Wikipedia page on that movie, Adam, it might show you what I'm talking about. It all ties back to that.
0: Maybe we'll do an episode on it in future, just to get to the bottom of some deep-rooted issues you have. Maybe it's worth working out.
1: Yeah, maybe one day.
0: If we're really, if we really run out of movies someday, that's our plan. Um, okay. Mo- moving to the next category, I have best of art house slash indie, and I think this is kind of an interesting year because there's not quite the kind of amount of indie that I think went before it and came later. And maybe we'll touch on that when we just kind of wrap up the year in a couple of minutes. I think the most notable movies. You've got Claire Denise, Beau Travai, um, a pretty incredible, compelling look at the French, a group of French Legion soldiers in Djibouti, if I remember correctly. Have you seen Beau Travail? I have not. Beau Travail is definitely worth checking out, as all Claire Denis stuff is. Uh, Yi Yi, a uh, masterpiece from Edward Yang, kind of epic Taiwanese family story. Comes in about three hours long, possibly a lot of other people doing this podcast may have had it as one of the two films later um, that will really kind of focus on. Although even with that, I think one that if I hadn't gone the way I had gone, if I decided to go for a different movie, another, another Asian movie in this case, it certainly could have been the contender because it's one hell of a movie. It's kind of widely considered to be one of the very best movies of the 21st century. So certainly significant in that regard. I mentioned Dancer in the Dark earlier. Uh, Lawrence von Trier, not his most acclaimed or, I guess, most fondly remembered movie, it seems. Neither of us have seen it, so we can't specifically speak to its merits. But I know it's not the first movie that anyone really comes to when they think about Lawrence von Trier. Amores Peros, which was really, I guess, the the major breakthrough of Alejandro Gonzalez in a um someone who would obviously become very significant with Babel and then Birdman and The Revenant so a filmmaker who not the most compelling personally I would say someone who has been very well decorated but makes kind of tough movies to really go oh yeah this is good I'm into this but notable movie again as his breakthrough and then I have two movies on this that I guess I would call American indie although Yeah, no, they are. One is very much independent still at the time. One is kind of moving into the kind of Indiewood realm that is very much typical of this time. The very Indie one is one I haven't seen, but has been very high on my list of things I need to see for quite a while. And that is David Gordon Green's George Washington. Have you seen this?
1: Again, we're into the Andrew Snyder black hole. (laughs) These
0: these are 20-year-old movies, so... I expect this to be something that happens a lot more for us in the early episodes of this particular uh, journey, rather than some of the later ones. The other movie I feel like you will have seen, Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream.
1: Yes. Very good is a weird word to say, but a very upsetting but well-made movie, and definitely not uninteresting. I love that movie,
0: and honestly, it probably would have been... Uh, my next pick, if I hadn't gone the way I had with mine, it would have been right there, but I don't know. I don't know if I could, <laughs> we're only five episodes in. I don't know if I could kind of sell people on going to listen to us really kind of work our way through Requiem for a Dream just yet, because that is an incredibly dark and heavy movie. It is one of the more visceral kind of just frequently unsettling cinema experiences um, really, I mean, in keeping with so much of what Aronofsky has done, but that's maybe his best movie? Mm, I, I probably should give that some more a topic before coming out with it. I love Pi as well. But it's very much in keeping with everything that came later. So an important movie, a really good one, some incredible performances too
1: maybe and when some... you've won your first independent spirit award we can have enough cachet to invite him on and do a podcast about it i think that's what that podcast looks like adam
0: wow okay i'm I'm game for that one the blockbusters we've mentioned some of these but i guess the kind of big budget some of the more successful things that happen to kind of make an imprint uh, mission impossible 2 obviously highest grossing film of the year uh, X Men made its kind of bow on the superhero stage, Unbreakable, which neither of us have seen. Right? I have seen it. You have seen it. Okay. Well, yes. then I won't get you to say anything. But I'm bringing it up because someone, a good friend of ours, will be listening to this and loves that particular film. And I've promised someday I will watch it. Maybe we'll get him on when I watch it, and we could talk about it. But a movie that did perform quite well, and I mean, directed by my Shyamalan not an insignificant movie in that particular year. Meet the Parents I mentioned earlier, scary movie. And then a movie that I guess for the kind of run through and touching on some of the films of the year, one that I'm kind of, I'm glad to come to at this particular point because I think it will feed into just the ability to really kind of sum up some of the output. And that is The Perfect Storm. Like, what is The Perfect Storm, Andrew? I don't, I don't mean literally, I know what it is, but why is this a thing? What is, what is compelling about this? I feel it's a movie that's very much representative of a lot of this particular year, which for me, and this goes to a movie like Gladiator, it goes to a lot of things that we've kind of mentioned, and even going through the, the box office element. I just think these are really flat and uninteresting films, and it's, it's kind of a, a strange juncture in recent Hollywood in particular. And I think that's why some of the more interesting films, we have a couple that are indie, maybe not as many indies as we would get at other times. But then we also have a lot of foreign films that kind of punctuates true here. I mean, your film is a certainly a film made with an indie spirit, the one you've picked for later, although with studio backing where mine is a foreign film. I don't think that's coincidental that we're not necessarily being drawn to the kind of top of the marquee releases of that particular year because i just think there was kind of a flattening of what's interesting in the the kind of we've got lots of money to spend what will we make i do think titanic was largely probably responsible for that but also this is the this is the prime case of now when people talk about the middle being taken out of hollywood movies just this kind of where is our Dramas made from anywhere between 30 to 80 million like the answer is mostly they're back in the year 2000 I think part of why they're not made anymore is they're They were generally very uninspiring And they may have made a lot of money at a time where entertainment alternatives were uh, Comparatively few and far between but they would fall on their face now like there's there's a lot of movies here that just aren't told in interesting ways and I guess the stories aren't c- compelling enough as is that I just, this is a real kind of eye opener. And I guess the the interesting thing with this is where from the late eighties and certainly into the nineties and right up to the mid to late nineties, even you had this really strong wave of the independent scene breaking through, starting with someone like Soderbergh and then having Spike Lee. And then obviously you've got people like Tarantino that followed up Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Wes Anderson, those latter two, they came into what was kind of Indiewood, where all the studios started to co-opt independent cinema and try to package it as something of their own. And this feels like the kind of point where it reached something of a saturation, where they had kind of cut off the means for those movies to organically get the kind of footing that they got before and would again, again get later, and were left with this just kind of pretty mundane dross. I mean, I... I I know you said you felt this was a stronger year than you remembered. I I think certainly there's some real like masterworks internationally in this year, um, and the two films we picked are really really great films. I think overall though this is a pretty terrible year, and I, I I'm curious to see as we continue through the 2000s and we're doing these particular episodes over the, the coming weeks and months. I don't think this is something that's going to go away when we're doing these episodes till we get to. Mid 2000s, even possibly later, get to the 2006, 2008 territory. I mean, we now do have an established independent kind of it, its own kind of independent studio setting in place now with kind of boutique distributors like A24, like Neon, even someone I guess like anna Pern and all the backing that Megan Nelson brought in, starting from early 2010s and continuing up to now. And I feel like Fox Searchlight had its own kind of. Uh, rejuvenation as the as the 2000s as in the the first decade of the century went on but i feel like this is extra rough and i'm going to be curious as we kind of track this going forward and we dive in year to year i don't think it's going to get better for some of these it's just kind of a weird environment and the kind of movies that people would just go and see i think very much speaks to the stranglehold cinema still had at that time. And in hindsight, it makes me look at it and be like, hmm, is this something that we should be looking back on and kind of the changing forces? Like we blame so many other things for why cinema isn't as popular as it used to be, or the kind of movies that gross massive amounts of money now, as opposed to the movies that don't, should we kind of be looking at what movies were coming out when cinema had a captive audience you know the last time it really had a captive audience before I guess the internet really took off in the way that it has before smartphones and tablets and all of that stuff really kicked into gear like these are the kind of the last golden era in terms of the lack of competition the fact that we even have been able to talk about video stores and this speaks to that that even home video it had that kind of hold and if a lot of these were the movies and the best of the movies being put out, I'm not all that surprised that the industry ended up at a point where it has over the twenty years since.
1: Yeah, it, it it was a rough go of it for sure. I mean, the movies that I like most from that year, ones that we haven't really even brought up, one that we referenced on my uh uh my deep dive into why I love movies, uh, Memento came out that year, I believe. Um, I really like. I think you're a little more lukewarm on this movie, but Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous is one I really like. Mm. And then the movie I should have
0: mentioned Memento. I'll certainly say that. I Almost Famous is a significant movie, so one best original screenplay, I think I said it earlier too. So um definitely about oversights, but I should have mentioned Memento.
1: Also, Adam this year kicked off the Final Destination franchise. How could you have forgotten that? And we also get Leo's flop The Beach, which i cannot say that i've seen but i think it's generally regarded as one of his worst movies um that's a great example of
0: what i was saying though because that's danny boyle has made like train spotting like think think of a more kind of just outside of the system not necessarily in every way but in terms of subject matter how it looked how it was made um kind of movie and then Everyone's like, oh, OK, well, like this is how studios worked. It was just like, oh, that guy made a great movie in an independent sense. Well, we're going to take that person and put it into our system. And I'm sure they'll repeat something like that, regardless of what the story is. They give Danny Boy a lot of money. He makes the beach with the biggest movie star on the planet at this point. Um, and it's not good. Like that, that speaks to, I guess, the kind of lack of imagination and the way Hollywood was trending at that particular time.
1: Yeah, I can't say that I will be feeling a strong inclination to revisit this year on a podcast ever again. Uh, We're not going to do a chicken run podcast, is is what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to get at.
0: Don't count your chickens before
1: they hatch, Andrew. You know, never, never say never,
0: is is what I would say on that front. Okay, is there any, do you want to highlight as particular kind of honorable mentions for you? Would it have been Memento if you didn't pick... The film that you did pick?
1: Yep, yeah, it definitely would have been Memento. Part of the reason I didn't go into that was because we had discussed Memento and I think while this movie didn't necessarily have that same kind of impact in terms of making me become obsessed with movies and how movies are made and that sort of thing, it's probably one that I've I've revisited more and and view fondly and I think I can't say that it's it's a better movie, but um, it's one I, I think I, I hold closer to me in terms of enjoyment.
0: I think mine would have been Requiem for a Dream. Uh, I think that's if, if I hadn't gone the way I had, that's the way I would have gone with it. Okay, so with that in mind, let's get into our personal picks for our favorite movies of the year 2000. Uh, we are, I don't know, are we going to do spoilers? I would say we probably don't necessarily for the most part, but if it comes to a point where we are going to drop a spoiler, we'll we'll just give a heads up before saying it. Does that seem about right? I I mean I don't feel like I'll necessarily need to go into detail on, and um, we're not going to do a full run through the plot of these movies as much as I guess talk about everything around them. Does that seem right to you, or do you have anything in particular that you feel like you really want to go deep on spoilers?
1: I specifically mine. I don't think that'll necessarily come up. I think we can talk about it more broadly without without really ruining it for anyone. That being said, it came out twenty years ago, and, and it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> so folks, <spend laughs> this the, is very true. Spend the four dollars. Um. But no, we don't have to dig into spoilers. I think yours would be one that we might have a tougher time dancing around.
0: Yeah, I don't even think there's a lot to spoil. Like, in a traditional sense of what's a spoiler, I, I don't know what there is that's a spoiler. Maybe I'll say some things that some people might think are spoilers, but hey, the other part of this is uh, we'll we'll flag up something if we really feel like it's explicitly related to the ending or uh, a major unexpected development That isn't kind of obvious from what the story is about But we also did give notice of the movies We were going to talk about last week And as you pointed out they are 20 years old So Not going to be too concerned We will flag up anything that's going to be particularly obvious As a spoiler But we are now going to move into our movies So we're going to start with you Andrew Andrew what is the movie from the year 2000 That you have picked As your favourite from this particular year
1: Adam I have picked the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Daddy! Hello,
0: sugar. How's my little girl? <laughs> he
1: ain't our daddy.
0: I am the only daddy you got. I am the damn paterfamilias.
1: Now Mama's got a new beau. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you?
0: You can't marry him.
1: Why can't I? Am and I will.
0: This uh, gentleman bothering you? Well, you can't marry my wife. And
1: stay out of the Wallsworth.
0: To get back to his wife and kids, Ulysses Everett McGill will do anything. Say, hey, any boys, Smithy. <sighs> but he's about to get off on the wrong track. Who elected you, leader of this outfit? Well, Pete, I figured it should be the one with the capacity for abstract thought. Boys, you just stick with me. Man, we're in a tight spot. Believe me, I got a plan. And I can get my wife back and we can get out of here. Okay, I'm with you fellas.
1: Ain't you gonna introduce us, Pete? I've seen him first! Pete! (laughs) Them sirens loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. You two are just dumber than a bag of hammers. Allow me to introduce myself. Big Dan, toot core. Hey, what line of work are you in, George? Come and get me, Captain! Oh, George, not the livestock. Wait a minute. Since we've been following your lead, we got nothing but trouble. You have eluded me for the last time. I got the answers. I'm bonafide.
0: Maybe your friend's thing
1: I'm just a stranger. I think you'll never see no more. Mm -hmm. But there is one wrong. Son, you're gonna go far. I'll lead you on God's golden shore.
0: You ever been with a woman? I gotta get the family farm back before I can start thinking about that
1: written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, directed by Joel Cohen. Or I think they might retroactively have have uh attributed that to both of them. I know for the first half of their career uh writing credit was handed out equally where Joel was listed as the director for, for some of those films. But uh it's it's a very uh absurd movie. It's a let's 1937 Mississippi Great Depression era movie that is essentially a loose retelling of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. So yeah. there's a lot going on there. George Clooney is is our star playing Ulysses Everett McGrill. And essentially what sets our plot into motion without going into spoilers is he needs to, to break out of this prison chain gang with the two gentlemen that are chained next to him, Delmar O'Donnell and Pete no last name given. uh, And he lures them into this enticing kind of adventure chase under the ruse that or under the guise. You can bleep that out that, that there's a a treasure that he has buried uh, at an old home. And in two weeks, the area is going to be flooded and it's going to turn into a dam. So they need to get there and get that treasure, break out of prison, split the treasure and, and go on their merry way and, change around their fortunes and then it takes us through the story of the odyssey essentially but in this uh backwoods mississippi epic action adventure story uh it's it's very a a very uh funny movie the the coen brothers early in their career um kind of honed in on a specific style and that's a a well-written movie with a lot of sharp dialogue um i've seen this movie probably 10 times at minimum. It's one of the movies I've seen most in my life. Adam, what kind of familiarity did you have with this during the era it was released? Or is it something you come you came to as maybe you were diving deeper into the Coen Brothers' uh, filmography? I would have said I came to this
0: around 2008, which is when No Country came out. Will that sound right? I think that would have been the point when I really... I, where I know I literally went and I bought DVDs and Blu-rays of uh, pretty much every Cone film at that time. And that would have been my first contact with it. I believe before I sat down to rewatch for this podcast, I had only seen this movie once. And I didn't really connect with it the first time I saw it. And I say the first time I saw it because I enjoyed it so much more when I rewatched it for this. I don't know what exactly that is. I don't know if that's down to the mood I was in when I first watched it, or I don't know, the person I am now as opposed to the person I am then. I do think there is an obvious element to this that is, you know, makes it more appealing to you and more of a barrier to me, which is just the general southernness and the country element of this movie. I, I feel like that works to its advantage for you, but I don't know necessarily... If for someone like me or for international audiences, if that necessarily play to its strength, do you see that yourself or am I, is that just specifically me in this movie?
1: I don't think that it's specific specifically you. I think it is something that might be more difficult to appeal to audiences that aren't familiar with people that talk this way <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense do those
0: elements a better way of it do those elements actually add to it for you do you feel do you think they are some of the reasons why it it speaks to you and you have watched it so many times
1: i yeah i think it does i think that does definitely play into it because part of this movie for me growing up was just repeating the lines back to to my dad or my brother and, and just the, the funniest things that would, would keep us laughing. I think a large degree of that had to do with, Oh, we have relatives that talk like this, or you could go to the gas station and buy a Coke and the, the checkout guy might sound exactly like Pete. So I definitely think that that plays into things. Uh, I won't say that's entirely my enjoyment. I think it's also just that the Coen brothers are, are master filmmakers that really know mm-hmm. how to, craft a a satire or an absurdist comedy i I think i said to you the the one thing that that really stands out about this movie is the just sharpness of the script uh george clooney's character is is a little bit of a a con man that thinks he's smarter than he is and the reason he thinks he's so clever is because he really knows how to turn a phrase and (laughs) that's very true and so that his cleverness Kind of set against the ignorance and stupidity of his two chain gang mates, uh, really is where a lot of that comedy stems from. And then, as you go through the story and you're introduced to to more and more characters, whether it's the the politicians or uh, a store owner or Pete's cousin, as you kind of get introduced to more characters, the world just becomes richer and even funnier because of how absurd everyone is, and. That doesn't work as well if that screenplay isn't uh, razor sharp and and tight.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I mean, one thing that I think is worth flying up, and you know, it's something that I think the there is an element of the script that is strangely it feels very much akin to its predecessor, and yet they are entirely different movies. And I think it's worth mentioning because this is a really bold. Swing in a different direction because the film that came before this was the big Lebowski. And maybe in hindsight, it's, it's easier to frame that as something of a gamble because the reality is more, you know, big Lebowski, not exactly the most successful film in the world by any means. It's a film that's found its audience in time. It was a cult film and something that's now universally acclaimed that wasn't necessarily that way at the time. And certainly didn't, take in as much money at the box office as you might associate with. I mean, it made in the region of thirty million dollars less than um O Brother where art Thou*, So that in its own right is interesting. But when you look at their filmography and I think you zoom out, it does feel like an interesting jump to go from Lebowski to O Brother.
1: I agree with that. Um that being said, I think the Fargo Big Lebowski O Brother where art thou trio are still sort of tied together in that it's when I think the Coens really honed in on their comedic voice, balancing that with serious elements. More in Fargo than the other two. I I don't know if you've ever seen Raising Arizona, but that movie oh, yeah. that movie is a little more off the rails, and it's it's a great movie. I don't think it's as as honed in. On that comedic voice, as Fargo, The Big Lebowski, or our Brother Where Art Thou is. You might disagree with that. No,
0: de- definitely a, a more chaotic kind of screwball than what they ultimately settle on. It's you're you're. I think you're right in the way you put it. I think Raising Arizona is their spin on a certain kind of movie they've seen at that early point in their career, where this is how they make their movies. If that makes sense, I think they've just they've come to a natural progression at this point where maybe some of the intent between something like Raising Arizona and Brother were the same for them, but their understanding of what it meant for them to make that movie was far superior by the time they came to make this one, as opposed to when they made Raising Arizona.
1: One thing I also wanted to point out about, about this movie is I don't know if it strikes you the way it strikes someone like me, like you're saying, from the South, is the the role that, that music plays in this movie. Now, mm. obviously, one of the major plot points is that they uh, record a, a hit song together, so that is obviously a huge part of it. But this soundtrack um, was actually incredibly popular when it came out. I mean, it was. we had a, a copy of the CD in My Dad's Truck. A lot of it was uh, covers of, of period folk music um, from the era, so songs like oh death you are my sunshine big rock county candy mountain and some of them were actually you know period appropriate like mu- music actually recorded kind of just after that era it also featured um some contemporary bluegrass artists covering some of these songs Allison uh, alison krauss Gillian welch emmy lou harris are increp- incredibly popular bluegrass musicians of, of the era and still um, are pretty active today and, and i think one thing that it did whether this is a good thing or a bad thing in your opinion because I know one of these bands I'm about to reference uh you're not quite a fan of I think this is a take I have I think this movie helped mainstream and legitimize bluegrass music and gave way to bands like Mumford and Sons and the Avet brothers and the Lumineers having mainstream success and popularity so to go beyond uh just film and to also make, a big impact on music is very interesting for a movie that's not a musical in my opinion
0: i i wonder is that does that come through your prism which is actually funny because yours is closer to a lot of music that would have its roots certainly in a lot of the music that's i guess found in this movie like someone like mumford and sons is a british band I, like i i don't think over to where art there or anything around it would have had any influence on how their sound was shaped because just it wasn't culturally important that way here i i didn't realize until researching this just how successful that soundtrack was and that is pretty surprising for me i mean i'm not saying it's not great it, it is and it's actually just a super fun listen throughout the film but i wasn't necessarily prepared for it to to be something that you were going to be telling me or that I was going to be reading about as, oh, wow, this was like, this was a big hit as a soundtrack. And that that is interesting. Music is is completely central, and I think that's not just something that's apparent to you, that element of it. The thing that was really striking for me watching this now, as opposed to when I watched it the first time, because the film about the reference hadn't come out the first time I'd seen it, but like this is this is a perfect twin with Inside Llewyn Davis. Like the, the synergy between these two movies. I'm not the first person to observe this or remark upon it, but it is kind of on the nose. From the the way the recording sequences are set up to the uh, the role that music plays Charlie a lot of it, to I guess some elements of John Goodman's character, but even the fact do you know what the cat is called inside Lewin Davis, the cat that Loon is chasing after?
1: Uh that's one I've only seen once, so I that has slipped my mind. The cat is called Ulysses. Date me are just Two
0: Sides of the One Coin, and I love that movie. Uh, I think when I re this, that actually aided me somewhat. And it's, it's not like... I love the Coen Brothers, and there's a lot of Coen Brothers movies that I really, really deeply care about. This was just one, and I guess one of their more notable ones, that just didn't quite land at me on first watch. And I'm glad that we're doing this, and we've had this whole exercise, because this time, I got it. I, I mean... I laughed throughout, but it also just, it worked for me on every kind of level. Um, In some ways that surprised me too, but yeah, I I am, I don't know how we can fully get to the heart of, but I am kind of infinitely curious about just how this movie kind of lands with both of us. I think this is one of the classic cases and maybe one of the most severe that we could possibly find where we're going to talk about a movie where, the fact that you're from North Carolina and I'm from Ireland actually really plays into how we possibly receive this first and foremost. And just kind of the first impression Um, for me, maybe part of that is even just dialect and dialogue. And like, maybe the first time I watched it, I missed some jokes where for you, that's not a barrier at all. I, I don't know. That is somewhat speculation on my part, but I think it's entirely in play. It is, it is a very specific movie
1: yeah, and I think that's fair. I mean, a line such as Ain't this place a geographical oddity two weeks from everywhere uh, maybe isn't as f- uh, funny if the the ain't of it all isn't so recognizable to to the person watching it or the the things that Pete and Delmar will say in their slow drawls uh it was something you know, I was familiar with that that you weren't necessarily as exposed to uh, well you're exposed to it now adam because we do this podcast I am. we do this podcast once a week and you have to hear me talk and then you have to edit and hear me talk again so t- tough sledding for you over there uh one thing i wanted to transition to uh, i'm gonna bring out another hot take um i, f- I found a mumford and sons interview where they referenced that um that soundtrack so that's wild i'll have to watch that after this but anyway yeah it's in a denver post article that references a lot of these bands so it's it's very strange a question i had for you is off the top of your head i probably should have prepared you for this more than just one line in a in pre-show notes this is up there with my favorite george clooney performances just because of the meal he makes out of the dialogue where does this rank for you in terms of the best of clooney hmm
0: i I think the one thing that jumps out to me with that is my favorite version of clooney is this version of clooney it's the clooney who i mean the clooney who was also in burn after reading even have you seen the men who stare at goats
1: i have uh that's a clooney that i like in a movie that i don't think was quite as effective as i thought it was going to be
0: I really liked that movie when I saw it in the theater. And when I saw it again, I'm pretty sure I owned it on Blu-ray because I liked it so much. And then I was incredibly disappointed when I opened up that Blu-ray and watched it at home. I was like, this isn't very good. But I think he's channeling a very similar type of Clooney in that movie. And to me, that is my favorite version of him. I think the Coens tap into something very interesting about him as a movie star. He's one of these people that his career is just kind of difficult. Like when you dive into and you're like, "What are the best things here?" You get kind of an odd collection of movies. I mean, when I think of some like *Hail Caesar*, obviously another Clooney Cohns collaboration. And I really love him in that. But even something like *The Descendants*, he has a few pretty zany moments that are in this kind of key. And if you're if you're not going that kind of direction with what Clooney you like, I mean. I guess you've got like the Oceans movies as maybe the slickest, suavest, most kind of one of the biggest movie stars on the planet version of him, which I certainly don't say no to. I really enjoy those movies, enjoy him in them. I guess the other side of him is up in the air, Gravity, Michael Clayton, that kind of version, which I think he can do that kind of thing really well. But this is the one... Where, I mean, it's quite obvious how much fun he's having, but I I think that really serves him. I think the more fun he seems to be having in a movie, the more engaging his performance tends to be.
1: I think that's true. Clooney is one of those guys that when he's in a movie, he's always playing George Clooney and that he's a movie star who doesn't necessarily get lost into characters the way some actors do. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I think I agree with you. Where the best version of him is the one where he's kind of going off the rails a little bit and gets to have a lot of fun. So this is up there with me in terms of my favorite performances. Obviously, as you mentioned, when he's with the Cohens, he's at his best. Hell, uh, Caesar in particular is a movie that I don't think got the acclaim that it deserved, and especially his performance. I think he's great in that. Adam, turning to Another, um, thing I wanted to mention, we referenced earlier that, um, this is a movie that sort of made some big breakthroughs in terms of technology. So frequent collaborator with the Coen's, uh, cinematographer, uh, Roger Deakins worked on this film and he's someone that's obviously been in uh, the news lately as he, as he won again for, uh, 1917, uh, after waiting for Blade Runner in 2049 a few years ago after being shut out uh, far too many times but this movie has a very specific look that i guess was supposed to really put you in that time period it's almost like a a sepia tinted visual and i if i remember correctly i'm not i lost my notes here but this is i've got the detail if you need it i think i found it this was the first movie to use digital color correction after the film rather than doing that while shooting it. Is that kind of how it works? You know, you know, all the technical things a lot better than I do.
0: Yeah, it was, it was the first major film. And I guess widely believed really for financial reasons, as much as anything to be the first film to have uh, been digitized and turned to a digital intermediate in the process in order to color correct it. And there had been some other instances where that happened, but not where there was essentially no visual effects in the movie. Like, I mean, any of the things that, you, I guess, you could have done were done practically. So this was purely a decision made by the Cones and Deacons um, to achieve this particular look and this particular colouring. And, I mean, that is really interesting and surprising. I mean, this is not the kind of movie you would think, oh, this is going to be the film that's going to have this particular uh, technological breakthrough. Breakthrough might be the wrong way of putting it, but to take that particular leap and to make that decision. Uh, But it is a film that, you know, I guess you've got these, well, three artists, but you've got the Coens on one side and Deacons on the other, very distinct visions, know what they're doing, and also just with an element of shorthand i mean had worked together already at that point then would collaborate frequently beyond the two where they knew what they're looking for and on both sides are also generally pretty open to what's the best way to make our movie and um, technologically or in terms of camera what do we need to do to get what's right for this particular movie and yeah it's it's kind of interesting that they broke through with that but i I also think, I mean, some of the movies I mentioned earlier, some of the bigger movies of the year, like, whatever's going on with the lighting and the colour in Gladiator, it looks awful. It's just so bad. It's so grey, but in a grey that is artificial and no one has ever seen before. I don't know exactly what way they went about that, but it is really striking then when you see something like, oh, brother, like... This does look like movies now look. You know, this is something that is now a very, very common part of the process of making a film. And they took that step with it. And I think not only did it pay off in establishing their vision for the movie, but also in making it a movie that I think holds up a lot better than it would otherwise. Like a lot of movies at this time look aged. In a way that this particular film doesn't. Maybe the period elements play into it and help in that regard. But I do think that particular decision for the aesthetics certainly helped them too.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but that's something that I struggle with sometimes and that can really take me out of a movie from a different period is when it it, it just is so jarring Um, to look at that it makes me really feel like i'm watching something from a bygone era now in some cases you know black and white or or something like that it's it's like something you can't get past but more along the lines of like cheesy 90s yeah
0: i think it's this particular era though right like and that's kind of something i was coming to early in the podcast is looking at the kind of movies and what a lot of them look like and what they feel like to watch now like there's like for people of our age and our generation, like you've got old movies. If we just kind of want to bundle, I'm not even going to put time periods, just the laziest way possible. We've got old movies and we could put them over here. And you know, if they're in black and white, that's fine. That's how they were. That's how they're supposed to be. I can get by that. If they're shot on film and they're kind of really grainy. Yeah, fine. I understand why that's like that. I can get by that. The, the challenging ones for me are kind of, 90s to mid 2000s where again you are at this kind of juncture for change but some films less interested than others or some maybe trying to change but using using certain tricks or techniques that now really look dated um like i I think that is particularly of movies of this time that's a, a striking detail that can take you all the way out of it so getting that right that you can watch it 20 years later and you're like, oh, this looks great and it allows me to enjoy everything else is a big, big deal. And obviously it takes some real insight and awareness to get that right at the time because you don't have the benefit of hindsight. And um, it possibly in some cases would take a Cones and a Roger Deakins to really kind of crack that particular case and get their look exactly right for the movie that they were looking to make and ultimately made
1: Another thing, um, Adam. I think I should I should mention we we talked about how George Clooney really anchors this movie and is having a ton of fun as as Ulysses Everett McGill. This is a a movie that's exceptionally well cast as well with a lot of frequent Cohen collabor- collaborators, John Turturro who who plays Pete, who I believe is is from uh, Brooklyn, New York doing a very effective and funny southern accent which is not easy to do that that can come across very poorly uh tim blake nelson as as delmar is fantastic you've got john goodman who had before collaborated with the Coens on on the big lebowski um holly hunter as a uh, george clooney's wife it's just a a, a really well cast movie you got steven root as a blind radio station manager there's really just a lot going on with the cast and the way that they round out these characters are another thing that really makes this movie work and and come out as well as it did. Stephen Root is one that I saw in the credits. I was like, I don't remember
0: Stephen Root being in this. And I completely forgot about seeing it in the credits. And I didn't recognize him in the movie. And now you've said it. I'm like, oh, that was Stephen Root. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, Charles Durning was another, um, another actor who's incredible in the movie and had pre- previously collaborated with the Cones. who's probably probably worth a shout out there but yeah a really great cast and i mean the kind of cast that it's almost a given in a Collins movie that it all comes together and they just seem to have this really kind of this great eye for what actors fit the particular tone of their movies and maybe more importantly an ear for what kind of actors uh will deliver their dialogue in a way that's gonna like prop up the movie rather than bring the whole thing down in itself because it is something that's so intricate and so specific and maybe never more so than in this particular movie that you've gotta get it right and I think they did. I mean Clooney may be the trickiest one and I, I like Clooney's performance in this, but I, I he may be the one who is most unnatural or maybe that is just the inherent oh, it's George Clooney of it all. And maybe with this character even more than some other characters he played later for the Cones.
1: Yeah, it's it's a role that doesn't exactly scream George Clooney when you think about what the character is and how he would be described going into it. But then as you're watching it, I mean, I don't know if I can imagine anyone other than Clooney in this role. He just um, does such a great job. Adam, this is a movie that very important to me, something I, I'll i revisit often. Um, I don't listen to the soundtrack as much anymore. I might have aged out of that. But it's something that everyone should see if you like movies and if you're specifically looking for something from the year 2000 to watch. Because as we mentioned, um, it's kind of a, a difficult deep dive for the things that were popular And if you're a completist like Adam and you're trying to work your way through all the Coen Brothers movies, make sure you don't skip this one. Just plan a full day of Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and A Brother Where Art Thou. Your sides may hurt um, from laughter at the end of that, but it will be time well spent.
0: Okay, Andrew, so we'll move on over into my particular choice for the year 2000. And the film that I have picked out as my favorite, and honestly, this could have been my favorite of any given year, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, it's Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. So for those of you listening, those of you who may not be familiar with Wong Kar Wai, it's entirely possible. We probably have a split. We probably have some people who are kind of hardcore cinephiles who, of course, they know who Wong Kar Wai is. He's widely kind of hailed as one of the modern masters of the medium. Where then, I mean, his movies aren't the kind of flashy, you know, uh, Crouchy's Tiger, Hidden Dragon kind of movies, like I mentioned earlier, that have necessarily had massive breakout attention worldwide that would draw in all sorts of viewers he has had hits globally but i would say still very much within the art house kind of world so he's a filmmaker where you know awareness may vary but he is someone that i think people should very much check out and if you're gonna do that there probably isn't a better place to start than in the mood for love there's another couple of contenders that you could go to I mean King Express which was released in 1994 does predate this as maybe even still to date one of his biggest international hits and just a truly incredible film that's really innovative in terms of its structure its its story and also laying out a lot of the hallmarks of I guess what Wong kar wai became as a filmmaker or even was at that time and certainly there are lots of elements of that that Kind of carry over all throughout his filmography, and I certainly found it in the mood for love. Happy Together was another very notable movie in 1997 that came out. Um, and I mean, since then, he's kind of had an interesting mix of movies, not quite hitting the kind of heights in terms of acclaim or even box office success that movies like Chung King Express, Happy Together, and In the Mood for Love had previously brought for him. His most recent movie came out in 2013, and that was The Grand Master. Uh, which was a martial arts epic in its own right. Just a filmmaker, though, who is endlessly interesting, endlessly mysterious, thinks about the medium in its own unique way. And I think in the kind of trajectory of his career and through his films, there has been this development of how he thinks about movies, how he makes his movies and what his movies are about. And there's no movie that better encapsulates that than In the Mood for Love, which is this kind of sweet spot where he has built up some profile. He's become more aware of himself as a figure in the kind of world cinema community. And it leads to what may be one of his most interesting works of all. So for the very, very kind of brief snippet of what In the Mood for Love is, if you haven't seen it, it is a movie that is essentially about two couples um two Shanghainese couples living in hong kong in the early 1960s the movie begins in 1962 to be precise um i mention it as a movie about two couples that much is undeniable for anyone who's seen it but the fact is we only see one half of both of those couples in any kind of real role or any real sense throughout the course of the film in fact Although the other halves of those couples are on screen at a couple of points in the film, we don't see their faces. We see the backs of their head, or we may just hear their voices. And the reason for that is this is a movie about these two couples who move into an apartment complex in Hong Kong at a point in time where Hong Kong was very much kind of delineated by what part of the world you were from. As I mentioned, these are Shanghainese people Wang Kar Wai himself, although he has lived most of his life, I believe, from the age of five in Hong Kong, uh, he was originally born in Shanghai. So this is a deeply personal movie to him that mirrors um, the, the kind of lifestyle and the kind of people that were around him at this particular time, which would have been his childhood and into his early teens in Hong Kong as he was growing up. What the film really kind of touches on, you get these two couples that move next door to each other on the very same day and we kind of chart their progression from there. It is a movie that I guess is about not quite the breakdowns of marriage, but the splinters and the splits within a marriage, the lies people tell themselves as well as each other, and the secrets people keep and why exactly they do that. You watched this movie for the first time for this podcast, right?
1: I did, first time.
0: What were your impressions? I I think it's a kind of it's a pretty singular thing. It's kind of it's out there on its own compared to a lot of films you may have seen over the years. So I'm curious as to kind of how it hits for the first time.
1: I think it's, it's a very familiar theme and broad stroke story. People in marriages keeping secrets from one, one another doing things they shouldn't be doing.
0: We can, yeah, we can be more, I'm not going to spare it to that point where we can't talk about it. I mean, this film is essentially about, um, uh, two people who f- find out that their spouses are having an affair with each other and then try to come to terms with that themselves. Like, that isn't a spoiler. That is the movie. I mean, that is very much kind of clear and there for everyone. So you can continue a little bit more free than maybe I set you up there.
1: Yeah, I was being a little... uh. Uh, broad to, to avoid that. But yeah, now that the cat is out of the bag, <laughs> but it's told in such a specific way, especially like, as you mentioned with the setting and the time period. And one of the things that stood out most upon that first watch for me is one of the things you also reference, Whereas we only see one half of each couple. So anytime Chow, who is our male protagonist is Mm -hmm. with his wife. We hear her on the phone. We hear her side conversation with him, but we never see her face. Same with Sue, who's the female protagonist and her husband. We see them talking. We see him going off on on another business trip, but we never see his face. And what that really drives home, the loneliness that each of these people are feeling within their own marriages they are starting to feel like that they might not know everything about the person that they're married to. And, and that's lonely. They're often in their rooms eating alone, uh, sleeping alone, wondering where their spouse is. And the fact that we don't see them ever really makes the, the audience feel that loneliness and that pain as well, which is something that I've never really seen done in a movie before and something that's incredibly effective.
0: There's, there's even a more specific reason for why Wonka Wai made that choice, and he has spoken explicitly about it himself. And it's something that is so simple and so obvious in so many ways, and yet I just think kind of encapsulates his genius, because I think it's the thing that just most filmmakers wouldn't do, and just wouldn't necessarily occur to them, the effect of it. Um, but he explains that particular choice in the movie as something he did and he instilled from very early on where he needed to introduce um, those two characters, the characters who are having the affair and issue that sets the whole plot in motion. But he didn't want to put them on screen or he didn't want to show, I guess the, the cracks in those particular relationships or show the, the acts of deception or infidelity in themselves, because he didn't want the movie to turn into a who's right and who's wrong where every interaction that those characters have early on in the movie is then something that later in the movie with the direction things take where the audience is down left to kind of litigate or kind of just reflect on, well, you know, they should do that because that person treated them this way or, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it's fueling the real ambiguity. um, that's at the heart of this. And that's clearly most important in terms of the themes and ideas that one car wise playing with in this particular film. So for me, that, that is something that like, I mean, there's a movie we both love from last year, which is Marriage Story, which plays into some similar territory, not exactly identical, but does it in a very different way and does it very well. But I, I just can't think of too many people who would just kind of intuitively recognize the potential impact of basically framing these two key people in the story out of it entirely you know, um, having them that they're there, they're active participants, the audience knows, but in this kind of quite radical and quite bold way, I mean, there is one particular conversation that Chow has with Mr. Chang, um, who is the character who I guess is known as Sue for most of the film when we stop referring to her as her husband's name for obvious reasons, but there's a conversation they have where, It seems like with the way the camera's set up, he is like having a face-to-face conversation with Mr. Chang, and yet the audio and the dialogue for Mr. Chang is so low and it seems so distant and it's a really isolating effect of, you know, you don't worry too much about this person. I'm I'm kind of over-exaggerating it to the point where you know they're there, but I don't want you to focus in too much on what they're saying, what they're doing, and how they have provoked the events that essentially become the whole story of the movie
1: and that's a bold choice but i think it was also the correct choice because the story isn't necessarily or it's it's definitely not about the two people that are in having the affair it's about chow and sue and how those acts change them and how they process and learn to cope with um i guess the jealousy the distrust and the overall betrayal it's about their journey. It's not about the two people having the affair. And keeping them largely out of the story really drives that home and allows you to focus on the emotions that they're feeling and the emotions that they're expressing. And it's important that you really do focus in on them because I think it's it's something we've mentioned with a few other movies that we've broken down over the last few weeks is that sometimes the most effective emotion expressed is done in a subtle way. And I think that's definitely true for for this movie. It's it's a really quiet movie. Chow and Sue's interactions and their conversations ab- about uh, the affair that they think are, are going on, and their budding what we'll call friendship, and eventual we won't get into that. But it's it's very quiet, and the the silences and the little details around what they're saying are really what's most important. And because we're so honed in on them by the absence of their spouses, I think it, that really comes across even better.
0: Yeah, and we will get into the thing that you were avoiding <laughs> getting into. I'm not concerned about this, Andrew. I'll let people get mad. Um, this is this is famously a film that, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get into the the merits of it as a as a romance or and the demerits of it as a romance. But it is famously like one of the all time great romances. I even. Um, put it as such last week um, in promoting this particular episode and referring to this particular choice I've made so we don't have to dance around that um, entirely as the movie goes on Chow and Sue develop a connection is the best way of putting it because this isn't the traditional romance I think this is widely kind of has been written about in any kind of analysis or discussion of the movie. I mean, this isn't a romance that we see consummated in any way, really. It's even a romance that both of the characters involved in it, they're not really all that keen on kind of verbally expressing or reciprocating their feelings for each other. You know, it's it's a kind of strange dynamic. And part of that is fueled by they are brought together by um, the infidelity of, their spouses and much of the movie is set against these two people who clearly have a very deep bond a very deep connection and just develop real affection for each other and have this really kind of sizzling chemistry at the same time all they want is to not be the kind of people that have made their lives what they are so you're putting people in this position where the last thing they want to be is what was you know, what was done to them? They don't want to have an affair. They don't want to be like the people they were, uh, the people that essentially brought them together and fueled their bond. So it, it creates this kind of really fascinating dynamic within the movie. And I I think what makes this film particularly special is the fact that for its endless romance, for everything that the score, which we'll get to later, and the camera, which we'll get to later the lighting, the mood, everything in this film, the classic kind of, the classic Hollywood look of uh, Maggie Chung and Tony Leung as the two stars of this movie, for all of what that brings to the table, there is also just this, this strangeness and this kind of sinister edge. And every time I watch it, I pick this up more and more. And in having read a lot more about it in the past few days in preparation for this, I've come to realize, like, this is almost exclusively Wong Kar-wai's relationship with this movie, is that he feels this is a pretty, you know, creepy and sinister movie. And a lot of people just don't seem to get this. I'll read one particular quote, which he gave to LA Weekly at the time of the release. And that is, the role of Tony, that's Tony Leung, who plays Chao in the movie, Um, The role of Tony in the film reminds me of Jimmy Stewart's in Vertigo. There is a dark side to his character. I think it's very interesting that most of the audience prefers to think that this is a very innocent relationship. These are the good guys because their spouses are the first ones to be unfaithful and they refuse to be. Nobody sees any darkness in these characters and yet they are meeting in secret to act out fictitious scenarios of confronting their spouses and of having an affair. I think he really taps into something there that is very much obvious when you're watching it and yet you could kind of have it fly right over your head too because there is so much that's just obviously romantic about the movie and how the story is being told that it could go unnoticed that these people aren't just bonding over the fact that you know they were both betrayed by their spouses they are acting out they are discussing what do you think it was how do you think their first interaction now when when they first decided that they were going to be unfaithful how did that happen and that is a really kind of bold Uh, left turn that you wouldn't normally see in a movie like this
1: there's an uneasiness to that scene as they're i guess in the in the restaurant and and kind of Mm -hmm. cosplaying as how they think things started it it, you hit the nail on the head when you can say that it is creepy and i guess where the more sinister nature comes into play is i guess in their own self-righteousness about what they're doing just because there's no physical element to what they're doing. But we'll call a spade a spade. What they're doing is they're having an emotional affair. They're just mm-hmm. not acting on it physically. And does that make them better or worse than their spouses? No one can really say, except, you know, it, it's up to interpretation. But they're effectively doing the same thing. I, I don't
0: think it achieves anything, is, is part of what I think Gronkar would would put it as. I mean, they're... They're kind of withholding and they're depriving themselves of something that they should be having because, you know, they have built their relationship to the point where they are a couple and yet they're not a couple. And yet that's not fixing anything in their own existing relationships. That's not making the affair that their spouses are having go away. So it is this kind of really complicated mess. And yet the fact that they persist with it, the fact that neither of them is prepared to confront the other the other spouse. I mean, it becomes this thing where they're into this particular game. And I mean, that's where for me, the vertigo comparison does stand true because there is particularly like when it's the scenes where they're first interacting, Oh, how did it go? Like, and uh, Sue is stopping and saying, no, no, that's, you know, he would never say that. Or when they go to have something to eat and she says, you order because I don't know what your wife would eat. That is very like Jimmy Stewart kind of, uh, making Kim Novak change her hair and change what she wears to kind of remake her. There is that kind of vibe to it, which which is deeply unsettling. Like, I mean, it's, it, as I said, this film works so effectively on its kind of surface level that that may not jump out to everyone right away, but it certainly is there. I, I think it's a, all the more interesting as a movie because of that. Um, To just kind of touch on some of the technical elements of this movie, because it is a marvel in this regard. Um, It's for all that it does in terms of story, which is phenomenal. It's how that particular story is told as a film, how it's told visually that really jumps out to me. I mean, worth noting, this is, I won't say a troubled production, but this is a one car wide production, which he tends to produce his own films with multiple backers who are kind of investing small amounts of money. And in exchange are affording plenty of creative freedom. So this was a shoot that went on for the best part of 18 months. Um, The film was primarily shot in Hong Kong and Bangkok originally. For it then not to be finished, because there was no hard deadline, Um, Wong Kar-wai and a lot of the same crew and some of the same actors. I mean, Tony, Tony Leung and Maggie Chung are both in the next film he made, which is 2046, which is loosely a sequel to this movie not originally by design, but because he wasn't necessarily finished with this movie. When he started the other movie, they went to shoot that in Singapore. He got to Singapore and he said, actually, this looks more like the Hong Kong of the 1960s than Hong Kong does. So what ultimately happened with this film was large parts of it were shot twice. (laughs) Like some people will say it was shot in its entirety twice, but certainly large chunks of this movie were shot twice. So I was going to say David Fincher is jealous is what I was going to add. Yeah, well, that's true. Christopher Doyle is a long-time, was a long-time collaborator, is probably a better way of putting it at this point, of uh, Wong Kar Wai. He's a legendary cinematographer, an Australian filmmaker who has spent most of his career working in Asia. And Christopher Doyle was really tied to Wong Kar Wai in every way. He went a long way towards establishing, you know, the look and feel of a Wong Kar Wai movie. Um, something like *Chung King express is, you know, very kind of inextricably tied to the way Christopher Doyle's camera operates, which is, it's often handheld. It moves very kind of freely. Um, there's there's no real constraint on it. It's It can be kind of nice and smooth one moment, then it can be more jarring and it can be more impulsive, but it creates a very distinct feel that was very much tied to what a One Car Wide movie was. And Christopher Doyle did work on this movie, um, but, I mean, Wong Kar Wai puts it that he was only about 33% of this movie. I think most people would say he'd worked on half of the movie, which is he did, you know, the original version of this film, and then Wong Kar Wai decided he wanted to shoot it again, and Christopher Rose said, I'm not doing this again, I'm going to go and do some other stuff. Which, at that point, Mark Lee Ping Bin came in, who is another, another legendary cinematographer, a frequent collaborator of Hsiao Shen, the legendary Taiwanese director. And he has a completely different style. And this is what's kind of important to understand with this movie and to know the production elements is because where you've got a more dynamic camera with Christopher Doyle, who shot realistically half of this movie, the other half was shot by someone who has a much slower, steadier, stiller, uh, more kind of graceful approach to how he shoots movies. And, Nobody has any idea what was shot by Christopher Doyle and what was shot by Mark Lee Ping-Bing. And the reason for that is Wong kar vision was so just distinctive and overarching that he shaped the whole look and feel of this film. And he has spoken about himself and said the departure of Chris Doyle halfway through, it helped in that regard because he had to take on that role of not just saying, oh, I have someone who knows way my film should look he had to tie it together himself, so he had to work much more closely with Leaping Bing. And it creates this particular effect, and you've seen it, I hope a lot of people listening have watched the movie and know what I'm talking about, but there is this way that the camera glides through the movie that wouldn't necessarily be typical of Chris Doyle, but there's a lot of Chris Doyle in this film. And there's a certain look and a certain lighting style that wouldn't be particularly typical of Leaping Bing, but it's clearly what Wong Kar wanted for this movie. it just comes together as a film that I think the performances are great, so the direction in that regard is incredible. But I think technically what was achieved here is pretty special. And to branch on that further, it's one of the movies that I just most admire in terms of how it works, the frame. And when I say the frame, I mean just the consideration given to where the actors are in the shot, where they are in relation to each other in every single shot of this movie, and also in relation to what their particular, uh, what point in their arc they are at, in the movie at the time. Every shot is really, really kind of, you can see the attention to detail that has gone into composing this in a very kind of stagely manner, the kind of manner that I think more filmmakers should employ, um, but not that many do. And this side into something I, I mentioned earlier, which is at this point, Mon White had a little bit of critical acclaim, had become a little bit more aware of he was being viewed as a significant uh, a significant figure in the world cinema movement, and as a result, he was starting to wear his influences on his sleeve a bit more. Uh, Robert Bresson is the name who most frequently comes up with this movie because One Car Why, I guess in turn because of this, has become synonymous with incredible close-up work. And he has spoken about how Bresson, and particularly in regard to this movie, understanding not just how you could work with an actor with a close-up, but how you could tell your story in a much more visual way, less reliant on on dialogue. This is a film that is pretty sparse in terms of dialogue for long spells. And how he gets around that is there's a lot of really nice close-ups on kind of objects and detail within a scene, on clocks, and on um, telephones. That's something that's very kind of Bresson-esque. And yet at the same time, you get these great shots where, um, if you're even just to Google the movie now, I'm sure some of the first images that will come up are these kind of really... Not quite unique because the the filmmakers who employ these kind of styles before are some of the the all time greats. Um, but you'll have these kind of stagings where you'll have Maggie Chung and Tony Leung, and one side profile, the other's kind of gazing into the frame, and you're kind of evoking something Bergman would do, um, something like Persona, where you've got Bibi Anderson, Liv Ullman, or uh, Antonioni in l'aventura there's quite a few shots like that it's just this is a kind of this is a film that i mean i think on the surface level it's going to really speak to people who are just like this is a really emotionally resonant story well told really well crafted but it's also got something that for people who are not just the best on that level but have a really deep love for for movies or a real kind of hunger to learn more and to appreciate different details it's all in there. This is a filmmaker in complete control of what he's doing and understanding the other figures who have brought him to this point, who advanced movies to that point to allow him to do it. Um, Antonioni is one in particular. I mean, there are, I mentioned there is like a Monica Vitti, Gabriella Frazetti shot from L'Aventura. There is kind of imitation of that, but he has himself kind of spoken to the way A lot of the streets, a lot of the street scenes, and there's some really distinctive scenes, stairways, very important in this movie in particular, they remind him of Italy, and he explicitly kind of said, I want to make that look like an Antonioni shot. And I think he largely succeeded. So it's a movie that, in what it achieves with its cinematography, in what it achieves with its direction, very much tied to it because of the fact there were two different cinematographers, and then the pacing of its editing, It's really deliberate, except for one kind of sequence in the movie where it ramps up really intentionally, almost representing kind of a quickening of a heartbeat. It's just, it's utter control from start to finish. It's a pretty exceptional work. Sorry, Andrew, I just went on my really long. I'm going to talk about all the stuff that a lot of people may not be interested in. But I think to this movie, central kind of technical craft details of the film itself.
1: Yeah, you know I'm not the technical guy, so I always learn something when when you're able to to deep dive like this. So thank you for teaching me something new yet again. So I can only tell you like the feeling that it evokes from me, the way that this style kind of progresses through the film. It's so as you mentioned the the tight framing around objects, faces, and that sort of thing. It gives you the feeling of intentionality, and in that they're really focused on getting this shot uh precisely correct but also simultaneously feels like you're just in the room with them
0: Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm actually gonna stop you on that because it it's not in the room with them it's like you're outside the room looking in because I, i mean i'm talking about framing in one sense but this film is just filled with every shot is almost uh through a door frame like say like say, someone like Fassbender does in fairy the Soul*, or through a window, or there's an object obscure, obscuring part of the part of the shot, or part of the actor, where it creates this thing which is almost rear window esque. Like there's a there's a voyeuristic element to this, where as an audience, he wants you to feel one kind of complicit, like that they have this secret and you're in on it, and no one is doing anything about it. But it also it does bring you this kind of extra layer. I mean, a key part of this and something Wong Kar-wai has spoken about, and certainly a really important element of the movie is, because of the kind of tight-knit and almost segregated nature of the different cultures living in Hong Kong at that time, they were just kind of overridden with gossip. And that's a really important element of this movie. Part of why they're so cautious in everything they do is they don't want people gossiping about them. It's ultimately kind of put as one of the reasons why the relationship never comes to anything else. And with that, it, it almost puts the audience in a place, the way he frames this, where it's like, you're right there. like You're behind the plant pot. You could be the person who's gossiping about this. So, sorry, I'll let you go back to your point, but just, that's one thing I forgot to mention that's really, really important, is it, it isn't just inside the room. It's it's kind of you're on the edge. You're always just outside the space looking in, um, which, again, is very kind of stage-like. That's, I mean, that is essentially what theatre is. But it has a really interesting effect of how he captures it in this movie,
1: and because of the the subject matter, it should feel invasive. So I think that's a really effective technique. It's it's like you're playing, uh, with a dollhouse, and in this case, we we, we really shouldn't be peering in. But yeah, that was all I had on that. You uh, you summed it up nicely.
0: Okay, my last point on it is I just want to note um, the score and the soundtrack, which is just completely incredible. One of the all-time great scores. Interestingly, not, uh, I mean, what everyone will think of when I say that is a piece of music composed by Shigeru Umabayashi called Yumeji's Team, which is actually from a different movie. It is from a movie called Yumeji, which was released in 1991, a Japanese indie film, um, played a can, but never really picked up any steam. So that is, I mean, the signature kind of musical motif of, that, of this movie um, was originally used as a score from a different film. But in addition to how that particular song is used, I mean, we get this kind of... We get this trick that is just... It's kind of central to all of Wong Kar-wai's movies. Chunking Express, which I mentioned earlier, is a great example of this, where the musical cues just repeat over and over and over again. And time and memory are really important in his movies. And they kind of have this... Uh, Barry Jenkins, director of Moonlight, and if Beale Street could talk, I mean, he adores One Car wise movies, and he has spoken about this, and particularly with this film, the kind of circular nature of it, and um, we see the same locations over and over and over again, and we hear the same songs, the same musical cues over and over again. It's something that comes across in all of his movies, and it's something like Chungking Express. We get a uh, California Dreamin', we get What a Difference a Day makes, and they just kind of they keep looping true. In this case, we get two Knackin Cole songs. I think two. There might be a third in there. But we get two of Knackin' Cole's Spanish language songs just used ingeniously, so well placed. I'm not sure how many directors, if any, actually use music better than one car. Why? Because he picks these really distinct songs. And songs that are just completely detached from the cultures he's often portraying in his movies and finds a way that they just feel totally organic, they feel totally of a fit with his film. And in this case, I mean, those Nat Cole songs are very, they're very, very different to the kind of signature piece of score, um, the Umeji's team piece of music that really kind of bookends this film at the same time they work really well with it. I know music is really important to you and it's always something that jumps out to you when you watch a movie. So what were your impressions of the music in this particular film?
1: So I agree. Um I think it was most effectively used with the Kieslowski's Kieslowski's um Nat King Cole song which is I guess used as as like a transition piece that takes us through different time periods. Because of what is happening during these transitions, I'm always going to have a very heartbreaking association with it because Mm -hmm. it's almost like a soundtrack to their missed opportunities if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. so i thought that in particular was the most effective use of music to me but yeah it is a movie where music does play an instrumental role and the preciseness of when each song is used and when each song is repeated is is so specific and so perfect yeah i i haven't seen any of his other movies like you have but as i explore the Criterion channel uh, subscription I have, that's something I'm going to keep an ear out for as I peruse the rest of his movies.
0: Okay, Andrew, I think that's all I've really got. Have you got any other thoughts on either of these movies or the year 2000 overall?
1: No. um, The only thing I'll say is that In the Mood for Love is something in particular that you had um, referenced a lot as we discussed what your favorite movies of all time were and I had never seen it and it's not something that I, I normally would see And until post-Parasite America, Adam. Now I'm all in. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, I highly recommended A Brother Where Art Thou, but I'll double down on your association of this movie is one of the best of all time and say that that is a hundred percent correct. And um, like we said last episode, the, the cliche that you've never seen anything like this, we overused a lot last week, but in this case, it's a thousand percent true
0: all right i appreciate that because i feel like a lot of people might have seen yours or will readily check out a Collins movie as they should particularly without brother but this is a film that i i think it's really really worth your time if you haven't seen in the mood for love it's one thing i really admire about it fully enough considering how long our podcasts always go it is incredibly concise for everything that's done with the movie for everything that happens in the story for just the the way it's told for the fact that it was shot twice and I can't even comprehend how much footage that they ultimately would have had for this. It only comes in at like 95 minutes. um, So pretty easy watch in that regard too. So highly, highly recommend for any of you who did listen and hadn't already checked it out. Please, please, please go. It's, it can be found on something like the Criterion channel, but I'm sure it can just as easily be rented through any kind of on-demand platform. Okay, Andrew, that does it for us for this episode. We've got something special in store for our next episode, though. I think it might be fitting if I let you tell the people what's coming up next week.
1: Well, Adam, uh, next week you get two Snyders for the price of one, as we are going to invite my younger brother, Jordan Snyder, onto the podcast to discuss um, some films by French director Jacques Demi, demi. I don't know how it's pronounced. Demi, yeah.
0: See, you're getting educated. This is gonna, this is a big week next week, Andrew. Th- this week he's maybe got some more one car wide to watch. Now next week he's gonna be all over Jacques Demi.
1: More specifically, I think we'll hone in on the umbrellas of Shoreburg and the young girls of Rochfort. Rochfort. We're we're working through this. It's gonna be an interesting one next week. <laughs> Rochfort. Come on, Rochfort. I
0: mean, Rochfort is a place I expect to be like. Uh, 15 minute drive from you
1: uh or Rochdale if it's an fa cup matchup in october november whenever these happen uh january anyway
0: so uh umbrellas of sherberg young girls of rush for and lola right they're the tree that jordan has highlighted that we'll probably touch on um in most detail there may be a couple of other jack to me observations in there
1: next week correct lola was the third and during the umbrellas of Sherberg segment I'm sure we'll touch on uh, the Snyder brothers and their obsession with La La Land, which has that movie to thank for its existence. Yeah, I,
0: I think we'll we'll kind of touch on some interesting things. We'll talk about probably musicals generally. We'll talk about the influence of Jacques Demy, a uh, uh, French new wave filmmaker, but one of the most accessible, I think for people who aren't necessarily into art house cinema or um, aren't necessarily rushing out to like watch all of the Jean-Luc Godard that they can, Jacques Me is a really interesting introduction to that world that gives you a taste of that and the way that particular film movement developed, but also gives you just like a feast for the senses, um, eyes and ears, very much a one of a kind and just a really important and interesting figure in the history of cinema. So looking forward to that next week and particularly to diving into some of the works that he has then influenced and some of the directors he has influenced too. So that should be a lot of fun. We've got all sorts planned, though. We're actually, we're doing really well in terms of organizing this, so we've got some things in the work. We're going to kind of mix and match. There will be some episodes coming up that are maybe a little bit on the artsier side or a little bit kind of deeper dive that maybe you're listening you're like, hmm I don't know, it may not be for me. I'd say give it a chance, stick with it, because we're also going to have the counterbalance of that, too. The, the week after that, we have another guest that won't reveal who it is just yet, but a subject and a lot of movies will touch on that one that I think may be more kind of familiar and readily accessible to everyone too. So please stick with us. We really appreciate all the listens, all the support we've had so far. Um, it's been all positive feedback from what we've heard. But again, any and all feedback, please get in touch. You can follow us on Twitter at captured on Cell. You can like us on Facebook at captured on celluloid. Um, You can also email us, I should say. If anyone does have any comments or anything they want to add, CaptureTheCelluloid at gmail.com. You can get us that way. That's all we've got for now, though. Until next time, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Thanks, Adam.